we uh, have quite a few questions that are somewhat uh, broad in their nature in terms of answering them. So I'm putting these on the on slides. The uh, next question I, I wanted to answer, and this is a real quick one to answer, uh, what resources would you recommend on the rapture and eschatology? So uh, if you're wanting to read more on this at a much more detailed level than what we're able to achieve here in this uh, in this particular uh, setting, I have two recommendations that I want to give to you on uh, future things, on the, the doctrine of eschatology, as we call it. The first one has been uh, compiled by our pastor, John MacArthur, and uh, Dr. Richard Mayhew, former dean here at the Master's Seminary, and it's called Christ's Prophetic Plans, a Futuristic Premillennial Primer, or you can just look for Christ's Prophetic Plans. It's a very good book, very uh, helpful. Uh, it makes a lot of these things about which we're talking very plain and simple, straightforward. Hardly recommend this. If you can't get it in the, the bookstore here, you can certainly uh, order it on Amazon. I checked, and it's available there. It's a reasonable price. And then one that's a little more uh, technical, but still accessible. It is, it is well-written and uh, written by numerous authors but a very good uh, survey of the doctrine of the rapture. It's been put together by John Hart, and it's entitled Evidence for the Rapture. And these authors respond to a lot of the uh, critical arguments that have been made against the, the doctrine of the rapture, as we have taught it here, as it is in our doctrinal statement, as I mentioned last Sunday as well. So if you are interested in more reading on this topic, I'd recommend these two books. All right, now to a fairly significant question, a very important one, uh, and uh, it's this. One of you wrote to me this question. If only church-age believers are included in the resurrection described in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 to 17, what about the resurrection of Old Testament saints? Very good question, and a common one that is asked with this. Often, when there's biblical teaching on a particular topic, the assumption is if it says resurrection, it's referring to every, you know, it's, it's all the same event. And in particular, uh, the texts that are mentioned that would suggest that there's just one future resurrection, the texts would be Daniel chapter 12, verse 2, and John chapter 5, verse 28 and 29. I'll read those in just a moment, but as I read those, Note that those two texts seem to suggest there's just one future resurrection, a resurrection of, of the redeemed and a resurrection of the unredeemed. So let me read Daniel 12. You can turn there if you'd like. Daniel 12, uh, verse 2. Here is an Old Testament prophecy, one of the most vivid uh, in the Old Testament Daniel 12, verse 2 says this, Many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake these to everlasting life, but the others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. So there is an Old Testament prophecy that there will be a future bodily resurrection. There was that hope among Old Testament saints in particular goes all the way back to Job. You find it in the Psalms as well. Very much a hope for a bodily resurrection. And that was present even among Old Testament saints. And when we read a chapter or a text like Daniel 12 verse 2, it seems to suggest there's just one future event. And so if 
1 Thessalonians talks about it, it must be referring to that same event as in Daniel chapter 12. Another text is from the words of Jesus himself in John chapter 5. John chapter 5, verse, verses 28 and 29, and it reads this, Jesus says, Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and will come forth. Those who did good deeds to a resurrection of life, those who committed the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. So again, it just describes this future resurrection, even in the words of Jesus, as this time when there's going to be, everyone will be resurrected, the good, or or those who have been redeemed, those will be resurrected unto life and blessing, and those who are unredeemed will be resurrected to eternal punishment in their physical state. And that leads to this conclusion that some draw, that there must only be one future resurrection. However, I want to make this note that what was originally described in the Old Testament seemingly as as referring to one future event, the New Testament, particularly the Apostle Paul, will take that and will expand it, and we're going to see from his own words, particularly in 1 Corinthians, that there are stages to this, and it's taught very clearly. And so we must understand that because of what we call progressive revelation, as God continues to uh, reveal truth in more detailed form, that you have expansion and you have certain doctrines that are expanded and developed into far greater detail, and that's what we find, especially with the Apostle Paul. A text that I want you to turn to is 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 22 and 24. As you know, 1 Corinthians 15 is that great text, uh, that most uh, packed chapter in the, uh, in the New Testament on the doctrine of the resurrection, especially as it relates to believers. And there are three verses here that I want you to focus on, 1 Corinthians 15, verses 22 to 24, and we read this in uh, this text of Paul's writing. He says, For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ, the firstfruits. After that, those who are, at, who are Christ's at his coming, and then comes the end. When he hands over the kingdom to the God and Father, when he is abolished all rule and all authority and power. Now, this text in itself deserves a whole morning. We don't have time to get into it, but let me summarize it, uh, if I can, in just a few moments here. And I want to draw your attention to the, the three stages that the Apostle Paul delineates here that take it much further than just Daniel chapter 12. First of all, he refers to the first stage, This is the resurrection of Jesus, and Jesus is called the first fruits. He is the first one who is resurrected from the dead in the the full sense. This refers to Christ's resurrection. Of course, you could go to the Gospels, Matthew chapter 28, and and, uh, Mark chapter 16, and Luke chapter 24, John chapter 20. All of the Gospel writers record that resurrection. Paul refers to it as Christ, the first fruits. 
Then there is a second stage. Notice how Paul is working through this sequentially. The second stage is, is after the first stage, and Paul describes this resurrection as pertaining to, quote, those who are Christ's at his coming. Now, that is a reference to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Remember, I made that very important observation that in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 to 17, Paul is describing those who are in Christ. And I noted that that is a phrase that is only ever applied to the church age. And so when we read here of those who are Christ's at his coming, that is a reference to New Testament church believers. That represents the second stage. This is the rapture the resurrection of the church, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, and Paul will go on to speak of it also a little bit later in 1 Corinthians 15. And then he says, the end comes. Then the end comes, the resurrection that does come at the end. And this is what refers more specifically to Daniel chapter 12. Daniel chapter 12 and the resurrection of the the redeemed and the unredeemed, is really included in this final statement. Then comes the end. Then comes, you could say, Daniel chapter 12. Now, in order to understand this end part, there is a little bit more revelation that we need to turn to that describes it in even greater detail. And for that, we look at Revelation chapter 20. In Revelation chapter 20, we have that phrase, then comes the end, that is further delineated into what we could call another, it it takes the third stage and makes it into a third and fourth stage, or you could say it takes that third stage and makes it into two subsets of stages. Revelation chapter 20, verses 4 to 5, it reads this, John writes, Then I saw thrones, and they sat on them. And this is, of course, a reference to the millennial kingdom. Keep that in mind, Revelation 20, the thousand years of Christ ruling as a result of his return in Revelation 19, and and that inaugurates this thousand-year kingdom. John writes, Then I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or his image, and had not received the mark on their forehead and on their hand. And they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection. Now, again, a few observations here are warranted that that help explain what John is referring to here. In this middle section here of, of this text, he is referring to the resurrection of tribulation saints, those who were beheaded because of their refusal to worship the beast. And you can go back into uh, Revelation chapter 7, for example, and and read of uh, that that group of, of that multitude of those who during the tribulation period will come to saving faith in the Messiah and will be beheaded as a result. 
They are resurrected then at the end of the tribulation period here at the beginning of the millennial kingdom. Now, this is a different resurrection than the resurrection of the church. It's a different resurrection. They are the ones who are resurrected as a result of the tribulation, and we would also put Old Testament saints in this category as well. Men like David and Abraham and others of the Old Testament faith who would be resurrected at the beginning of the millennial kingdom. And then you have this second resurrection that's referenced here. The rest, the rest of humanity, did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. This would be the resurrection of the unredeemed. All of humanity from all time, from the Old Testament period to the New Testament period, the church age, including the... the uh, the, the, the tribulation era. They will not receive their physical resurrected bodies until after the millennial kingdom. And they do so because, this being the last resurrection, they do so because they need to receive their bodies to stand before the great white throne judgment and then receive their judgment, which is eternal hell not only in their soul state, but in their entire existence, soul and body. As hell, that eternal punishment is meted out not only upon the soul and its existence, but also upon physical body. So how do we look at this? If we see this as a timeline, uh, this is the, 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 the next, these are the three uh, epochs, you could say, of, of God's redemptive work, the church age, the tribulation age, and then the millennial kingdom. And notice on this diagram that's not to scale, of course. Uh, it's just to help me fit this into one slide. You have the resurrection of Christ that really begins uh, 40 days prior to Pentecost, uh, or yeah, 40 days prior to Pentecost and, and Acts chapter 2. That's the first fruits. That is the first resurrection that Paul refers to in 1 Corinthians 15. Christ, the first fruits. Then you have the second stage of the resurrection. As Paul states in 1 Corinthians 15, this is the resurrection of those who are Christ's at his coming. And that corresponds with 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And then we have another resurrection that happens at the end of the tribulation period, at the beginning of the millennial kingdom. That is the resurrection of the tribulation saints. And we would put the Old Testament saints in here. And they are resurrected so that they too can, in their full state, soul and body, participate in the glories of the millennial kingdom. And then finally you have the final resurrection, which is the resurrection of the unredeemed throughout all humanity. Everyone is resurrected to, at that point, every unbeliever, unredeemed individual, resurrected, receives his or her physical body. And then each one stands before the great white throne judgment and receives their due justice at that point.
Okay? So when you hear the term resurrection, and you might read it in Daniel 12, understand the New Testament takes that and delineates it into different stages. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 20 to 23, very crucial on that. And then again, Revelation chapter 20. All right, the second or the third question here this morning. Does the rapture of 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 to 17 happen before or after the tribulation? Now, I've explained some of this already uh, and I've assumed a lot of it even in the answer that I just gave, but I do want to dig into this just a little bit deeper because it is a common question. When does this rapture occur? Like we said, the English word rapture is not in the Bible. The Greek word is in the Bible. When anybody says to you the word rapture is not in the Bible, that is a false argument. The word trinity is not in the Bible either, nor is the word justification in the Bible. Those are all theological terms and translations. When we talk about words that are in the Bible, we really have to talk about Hebrew and Greek words. And the Greek word for rapture is harpazo, and we looked at that when we studied 1 Thessalonians 4. So the rapture is in the Bible, but the question is, does it happen before the tribulation or after? Now, we all can identify that we're currently in the church age. The church is present on the earth. So the question is, does the Lord take the church? Remember that Greek verb, harpazo, means to snatch away. To snatch away. In fact, it was used in some contexts to refer to kidnapping. It has the idea of that, that snatching away that is not something that is inaugurated by or participated in by the or, or, or uh, uh, yeah participated in by the by the object. It happens to them by uh, by the sovereignty of another person. In this case, it is the sovereignty of the Lord who snatches away the church. Does it happen before the tribulation or does it happen after the tribulation, thereby meaning that the church must live through, exist through the tribulation period? So how do we answer that question? Well, the answer to that question is the church is raptured before the tribulation, and there's very good biblical evidence to warrant that conclusion, and and it's when we pay careful attention to the details of the text and take those details at face value. So I want to give you some arguments for why the rapture has to happen before the tribulation. Let me give you four arguments from 1 Thessalonians in particular, since we are spending so much time in this letter. Number one, Paul commends the Thessalonians for waiting to be rescued from the wrath to come. Remember, we saw that back in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 10. At the end of Paul's Thanksgiving prayer, you have that beautiful picture of conversion, how the Thessalonians turned from idols to the living God to serve him and to wait for his son from heaven, Jesus, who rescues them from the wrath to come. And in that context, the, the, the terminology there is very, very explicit, that the Thessalonians believed that Jesus, who is currently in heaven, would come and rescue them, take them out of coming wrath. It's very clear, and, it's, and, and Paul commends them for that, that anticipation. That is a good kind of hope that the Thessalonians had. That's our first argument in favor of 
a rapture prior to the tribulation period, because the tribulation period is a time of wrath. Secondly, from Thessalonians, Paul locates the wrathful day of the Lord, which we call the tribulation period, after the rapture of Christians. Let me say that again. Paul locates the day of the Lord, which is we're going to see when we get into chapter 5. The day of the Lord is a, is a designation in that context to refer to judgment, wrath. And we'll, we'll, we'll spend time in that. But notice how that comes after. There's just a chronology here. Paul first describes the resurrection of the dead in Christ and the rapture of all, the dead and the living in Christ, to meet the Lord in the air. And then immediately after describing that, then he begins the section on the day of the Lord. Let me give you a third reason. In that section on the day of the Lord that Paul will get into in 1 Thessalonians 5, he draws out implications for the Thessalonians today that in light of the coming day of the Lord, that should prompt us to holiness. But then he says, he says this to the Thessalonians, he says, God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. So he has spent verses 1 to verse 8 describing the judgment that's going to come in the day of the Lord. He draws implications from that, saying the reality of this coming wrath should motivate us to holiness today. But then in verse 9, he at the same time alleviates their concerns and says, but listen, God has not destined us for wrath. He has not destined us for the day of the Lord. He has destined us for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. And then there's a fourth argument that puts the rapture prior to uh, the tribulation, not the end of the tribulation, and it is this, the imminency of both the rapture and the day of the Lord. Now, let me explain it this way. Remember, when we were in 1 Thessalonians 4, we observed that Paul said, we who are alive and remain at the coming of the Lord will be taken. Now, remember, I, I said that displays the Apostle Paul's anticipation that he would be alive at the rapture. He'd be alive at the rapture, and he fully expected that it could happen any moment for him. We call that the doctrine of imminency. And we looked at some other texts throughout the New Testament that showed that for Paul, he believed that this event could happen at any moment. There would be no forewarning. There would be no series of predictable events that would precede or precipitate the rapture. Nothing at all. The rapture was the very next event on the prophetic calendar. Paul believed he could be very much a part of that. And he also describes the day of the Lord that way. Notice for just a moment, again, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. He's going to explain the day of the Lord, and he's going to describe it this way. While people are saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly. Suddenly. 
Now, the issue is this. Paul places the rapture, which is a one-time event, and the day of the Lord, which is a process, a series of events. He places both of those essentially at the same moment, meaning there is nothing that you can predict or, or you can't draw a calendar before these events. They're both going to happen pretty much at the same moment. And that means the rapture cannot happen after the tribulation. The tribulation is a period of seven years, as the Old Testament describes it. The book of Revelation describes it as a period of time, all kinds of stages that can be counted. There's days that are enumerated within the tribulation period. And if the rapture would happen at the end of the tribulation, it would mean that we could essentially begin the countdown to when the rapture is going to happen. Because it would happen at the end of these numbers of days in the seven years. But that's not how Paul describes it. The doctrine of imminency puts the rapture and the start of the tribulation period as imminent. It could happen at any moment. It will come as a thief in the night. And so that is another reason, a very big reason, why we cannot put it at the end of the tribulation period. But let me give you a few other arguments from the New Testament in general. Number one, general arguments. The church is not mentioned from Revelation chapter 6 to 18. If we look at the book of Revelation, in those chapters, chapter 6 all the way to 18, we have the very full description of what the tribulation period will look like. All the bold judgments and all those events that are described in there as we see how God puts his focus on two things. He puts his focus on judging the nations for their rejection of his gospel as well as returning Israel to a place of repentance. That's God's program in the tribulation period. But as we read of that in Revelation chapter 6 to 18, nothing at all. The word doesn't even occur. No reference to the church. No reference to being incorporated into Christ as we understand and experience it today during the church age. Number two, the rapture would become inconsequential if it is after the tribulation period. Because it would mean then that the rapture would not rescue us from coming wrath. We would have to endure the coming wrath. And so then you lose that concept that 1 Thessalonians speaks of as the rapture as rescue. The church must maintain its existence here on earth through all those bold judgments, all the descriptions of wrath poured out on the earth through Revelation chapter 6 to 18. The rapture becomes an inconsequential act. Why would then, at the end of the tribulation, the church be rescued when all the wrath has already been poured out? And then a third general argument here is this. In both John 14, verses 2 to 3, And 1 Thessalonians 3, we read of Jesus taking the church, his bride, not to earth, but to heaven. And first of all, John 14, I've read that text before. John 14 very much has 
the analogy of a groom going to prepare a place and then he goes to get his bride when the place is ready. John 14, Jesus says this in verses 2 to 3, In my Father's house are many dwelling dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And Jesus is referring to heaven then as the destination of that. 1 Thessalonians 3 verse 13 is part of Paul's prayer, and it corresponds with John 14. How? Notice, turn your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians 3, verses 12 to 13. 1 Thessalonians 3, 12 to 13, Paul prays this, And may the Lord cause you to increase and abound in love for one another and for all people, just as we also do for you. So that is a prayer for the present-day activity of the Thessalonians in their walk. But then he says this in verse 13. So that he may establish your hearts without blame in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. 1 Thessalonians 3, and Paul's prayer there is a prayer that will ultimately be fulfilled. God will do this. And what is envisioned there? What is envisioned is the presentation of the church to the Father without blemish. That takes place in heaven. That doesn't take place here on earth. And since at the end of the tribulation period, Jesus does not go up to heaven, he comes from heaven to now reside on earth in Jerusalem, reigning in Israel and over all the earth for a thousand years, the details don't match up. But if you put the tribulation, uh, or if you put the rapture before the tribulation, you have this presentation take place in heaven. And this is what is so exciting as the entire church, from the moment of Acts 2 and the day of Pentecost to whenever the final day of the church and its existence here on earth is done, the entire church in a massive reunification will be presented before the Father, each one of us individually and as a collective whole, without blame, without blemish, as a bride to her groom. All right, another question. Could there be a time gap then between the rapture and the beginning of the tribulation? So if we put the rapture before the tribulation then it raises the question, maybe there is a period of time after the rapture and before the start of God's next chapter in his redemptive plan. And so you could look at it something like this, where you see some kind of unknown span between the end of the church age and the rapture of the church and the beginning of the the tribulation period. Uh, and and it's you know it's, it's some have suggested that, but it really isn't possible for a number of reasons. Let me just give you a general reason first, and then a more specific reason. A general reason is this: as soon as the church is raptured and taken from this earth, 
there isn't an intermediate period where God has no redemptive program taking place on earth. He doesn't have that. He's going to move immediately into what comes next. But let me give you a more specific answer to this, and we've touched on it already. Both of these events, the rapture and the start of the day of the Lord, are described as imminent. We actually call this dual imminency. Let me read from a former professor here at the Master's Seminary, Robert Thomas. He writes this, Two prophetic events, yet future, will take place without any preceding signs or forewarnings of their occurrence. The rapture of the church and the beginning of the day of the Lord. Stop there for just a moment. If you put the rapture too far ahead of the start of the tribulation, then all of a sudden you do have a sequence of events, and, and, and then it's no longer imminent uh, in the normal sense, because you, you would have to have one take place far earlier, or some degree earlier than the other. So we call it imminence, dual imminence, and that both will have their, their moment, one a complete moment, the other a start, roughly at the same instance. He continues, The day of the Lord cannot begin before the rapture. Since both events are imminent, they must coincide with each other, occur basically at the same moment. That is why Paul can speak of both events as coming like a thief in the night or with related expressions. Like I said, dual imminency without any warning or preceding signs. And so this is how we essentially look at the start of, uh, at the completion of the rapture, that instantaneous moment, and the start of the day of the Lord, roughly at the same instance. All right, another question here. Is the rapture of 1 Thessalonians 4 the same as in Matthew 24, 37 to 41, and therefore a rapture that happens at the end of the tribulation. Now, Matthew chapter 24, verse 37 to 41, is sometimes given as, as an argument to place the rapture at the end of the tribulation. Turn there to Matthew chapter 24, because there's a text there that seems so similar to what we're talking about in 1 Thessalonians 14, but we have to make a distinction so as not to confuse the events that are spoken of in each of these texts. Matthew 24, just to give you some context, is part of what is known as the Olivet Discourse in Jesus' ministry, where Jesus prophesies about the future tribulation that the nation of Israel will endure that will culminate in the Messiah's second coming. You know the Olivet Discourse. It's a, a text that is rich with all kinds of prophecy and prophecy that is aimed specifically at the nation of Israel. And remember, we said one of the purposes of the tribulation is to return Israel to a place of repentance and faith and regeneration. The Olivet Discourse describes that. And this is what the particular text reads that has sometimes been confused with the rapture of the church. Matthew 24, 37-41 says this, For the coming of the Son of Man will be just like in the days of Noah. 
For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and given in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. And they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away. So will be, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. Then there will be two men in the field, one will be taken and one will be left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one will be left. Now, the language of taken there seems to suggest rapture. And so if that's the case, if you put it in the context of Matthew 24, if you go home and read that, if it's at the end of this tribulation, and the word tribulation is even used in that context, if it's at the end of the tribulation that these are taken, then it places the rapture, if you take it as 1 Thessalonians 4, at the end of the tribulation period. But there's a very important observation to be made here. Notice that Jesus gives the analogy of Noah. So in the context, Jesus alerts us, think of Noah. Now what happened with Noah? Well, he even says, at the day of Noah... They did not understand until the flood came and took them all away. So if we use the analogy of Noah, the taking away in that context is not blessing. The taking away is judgment. It is the remaining that is the blessing. Noah and his sons and their wives remained, and so they were preserved. So because of that, the analogy of Noah is actually the opposite of what we read of in 1 Thessalonians 4, and the rescue from coming wrath. In 1 Thessalonians 4, and the rescue from coming wrath, believers are rescued from what is about to come. They are taken. They are snatched away, and then wrath comes. But in Noah's case, in the events surrounding Noah... It is the it, it, it is the, the the class or the, the category of the unbelievers who are taken in judgment and Noah remains. And so now come back to the final verses of Matthew twenty seven in this text, verses thirty seven to forty one. Look at particularly at verse forty. Then there will be two men in the field, one will be taken and one left. The reference to being taken in that context is the reference of judgment. The one that is taken is the one judged, punished. The one left is the one spared. Verse 41, two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one left. Again, the one that is left is the one that is blessed And preserved, the one that is taken is the one that is judged. So those two texts are not referring to the same event. 1 Thessalonians 4 and Matthew 24, verses 37 to 40. Quick question here that is really kind of a very bizarre event that takes place in Matthew 27. And this was a question that someone raised, and it's a good one. In Matthew 27, verses 52 to 53, I'll just quickly summarize it. We have the instance where Jesus breathes his last on the cross. 
He gives up his spirit. He dies. And then all of a sudden, you have the tombs open, and the text says many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised and coming out of the tombs. After his resurrection, they entered the holy city and appeared to many. There is a resurrection that actually happens at the crucifixion of Christ. Now, someone, many people will ask, what is that? And I'll be frank, the Bible doesn't say. There's a lot of questions related to this. Matthew is the only gospel writer that records this event. Uh, the language is simple and straightforward. We are to believe it. It's not poetic. There is some kind of resurrection of Old Testament saints that happened at the death of Jesus And after his resurrection, these Old Testament saints actually go into the city of Jerusalem and show themselves. And that must have been a very bizarre event. Now, how are we to understand that? You know, the only thing that we can say is how Matthew incorporates it into his gospel. It is just a proof, an evidence of the profundity of the death of Christ and what it accomplished. Much more than that, we just don't know. People will ask, well, what happened to them? Are they still alive somewhere? Or are they still walking this planet in their glorified state? Somewhere there's this group of glorified, resurrected Old Testament saints wandering and waiting for the millennial kingdom to come. And, uh, you know, the Bible doesn't say what happened to them. Uh, my supposition would be that they, they were taken by the Lord at some point after uh, these events and the end of Matthew's, Matthew's gospel to be with the Lord in heaven. That's all we know. We don't know anything more. Matthew doesn't describe it. So it's kind of a, a strange, challenging text, but we just accept it and believe it and affirm it and move on from there. All right, this is a good question. Question 11. Will any Christians be left behind after the rapture? Real quick answer to that is no. If anyone who is truly in Christ at the moment of the rapture, anyone who is in Christ will be taken. And you can look at the context of 1 Thessalonians 4 and what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5. There's no indication that that Jesus leaves behind some genuine Christians when he comes to rapture the church. Question related to that then. And it's with this one that we'll end with, with this morning. Will there be a second chance for those who did not believe in the gospel before the rapture and who were left to experience the tribulation? The answer to that question is yes. Now, understand this. The tribulation period is going to be a time of extreme distress. And it will even be a time of very difficult belief because of all the judgment that will be poured on this this world. However, even though those seven years will be marked by judgment in dramatic forms, there will be remarkable accounts of redemption. Remarkable accounts. First, God will bring a remnant of Israel to repentance. A couple of years ago, I was uh, in the Holocaust Museum in Jerusalem, and it is one of the worst places to be as you relive or, or, or read of the history of, of the Holocaust. Uh, 
And what is so sad is that even after you read of, and see those pictures of all that horror, you, you get to the end of, of the whole display and you still have a people that is, has rejected their Messiah, has still not bowed the knee to Jesus as their Messiah. It's so very, very discouraging. But I remember taking a, a tram back to the hotel and going by all these apartment buildings and, and just thinking of all the, the Jews who reside there and then remembering the promise that Jesus is going to bring the remnant to faith in Christ. And what a joyous time that will be as they look upon the one whom they have pierced and they will mourn and they will repent and they will say, Jesus is Lord. And that time's coming and that will be a product through the, the tribulation period and of course leading up to the end of the tribulation period as God redeems the nation back to himself. He is not done with the people of Israel. But second, we read that God will save a great multitude that no one can number of those who have washed their robes in the blood of the Lamb. Turn, if you would, as we close to Revelation chapter 7, which describes these events taking place during the tribulation period, during the day of the Lord during a time of tremendous uh, wrath, the experience of wrath and judgment, war, pestilence, famine, and so on. And beginning in Revelation 7, verse 9, John writes this, After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude which no one could count from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, and palm branches were in their hands. And they cry out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders of the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen, Blessed, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Skip down to verse, oh no, read verse 13. And the the one of the elders answered, saying to me, these who are clothed in the white robes, who are they and where have they come from? I said to him, my Lord, you know. And he said to me, these are the ones who have come out of the great tribulation and they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. For this reason they are before the throne of God, and they serve Him day and night in His temple, and He who sits on the throne will spread His tabernacle over them. And then if you turn to Revelation chapter 20, we read of their resurrection at the, at the end of the tribulation period, the beginning of the millennial kingdom. Turn to chapter 20, verse 4 which then describes how those who had been beheaded, martyred during the tribulation period, those who had come to faith during the tribulation period, this great multitude that repents, and they are martyred, they're killed. And then in verse 4 of chapter 20, John writes of their resurrection at the beginning of the millennial kingdom. He says, when I saw, Then I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded 
because of their testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God and those who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received the mark of their forehead and on their hand and they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. So yes, there will be a time of redemption, repentance of, of Gentiles, not just Jews, but of Gentiles during the tribulation period. But it'll be a time of great distress, as John records, a time when believing that Jesus is Lord will in many cases end quickly in death, in martyrdom. That is what describes the tribulation period. All right. Well, there's more questions, and we'll just leave it at that. We will come back, and when we come back to... To First uh, Thessalonians again, we will start in chapter five and uh, look at the day of the Lord when we have opportunity. But let's pray as we close our time this morning. Father, we again are thankful that you have not left us without a testimony. You have not left us to wander in the dark about what the future holds. You have given us the knowledge that we need. Exactly that which cultivates our faith, which inspires our hope, which also motivates our holiness in the present day. And we rejoice in the reality that you have all of this worked out in your eternal plan. Nothing can throw it out of, uh, out of it, that plan. Nothing can oppose it. And more than that, we thank you for this wonderful promise that you have not destined us for wrath. This present age of of the church, you, you have in your great mercy and grace have planned that moment when you will remove the bride of your son Jesus before you bring wrath upon this earth and you will present us before yourself without blemish for us to enjoy the wonders, the glories of heaven in our full form, soul, and body, glorified to enjoy the fellowship with your Son and all the rewards that you have planned for your church. We thank you for that wonderful promise. And we ask that this would not just become head knowledge or an object of debate and discussion among others, but this would translate into confident hope in a dark world and consistent and faithful holiness as we know these things are coming and may come at any moment. And we ask these things in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen.